0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. And we are journeying together, looking at this series that we have for Advent of all I want for Christmas. All I want for Christmas and filling in the blanks of what is it that you really want? What is it that? You were hoping for and expecting on Christmas morning uh, to walk out and to find uh, that, that thing that you're, you're hanging a little bit of hope on, that you know if you don't get it, you're going to be disappointed. Well, We've said that whatever it is that you get on Christmas morning, you can enjoy it, but it won't bring you joy. You can have fun with it, but it won't be that anchor. It won't be that thing that is immovable. Because inevitably, at the end of the day, it's going to break. It's going to become outdated. You're going to outgrow it. Um, It's just not going to be what you thought it was. So what is it that we really want for Christmas? And what these are, are desires that are deeply embedded within all of humanity, and they are truly universal in this way. These aren't Christian principles and ideals, but these are things that we know about all humanity, that all of humanity needs to know uh, that there is a hope that's beyond this world, that if this world is all there is, then there truly is no hope. Uh, Then the Epicureans and the Stoics got it right. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That just take life for all that it is. Uh, The person who has more toys at the end of the day wins. But we know that the writer of Ecclesiastes said there's no hope in that. But that we have a hope that's anchored in heaven. That we have one Christ who is beyond this world. That he is our great high priest. He is our true hope. and, And that we know that in him he'll never fail us. He's not a wish but he is truly founded and grounded upon the truth of his word. We said last week that we know that what we want and all of humanity wants, whether they understand it fully or not, is love. To be loved, to know that they are the objects of love, worthy of a love that God said to us, I love you. I love you. That you are worthy of my love. I'm sending my son Christ into the world because I love you. And that we understand within that love that it's also a generous love. If God loved us that way that he gave, then the love that we have for him is a giving and a generous love. That it's a love that gives itself away to others at great expense to ourselves. But to love and to be loved is something that we all, all of humanity wants for Christmas And this week we're saying that what I want for Christmas is joy. All I want for Christmas is joy. That I want to experience joy to the world. I I want to be able to sing with the angels and the archangels. I want to experience uh, a joy uh, that again is not founded and rooted in this world. But that regardless of the circumstance, uh, that regardless of my emotions, that I can experience joy. Because the Bible says that I can. I can. I was joking this week with a couple of friends that if I was to have to hashtag this year, I would say, hashtag so thankful 2015 is over. And they're like, wow, Bill, that sounds a little melancholy. I was like, yeah, and I'm preaching on joy Sunday. So, um, but the problem with that hashtag, and if you don't know what a hashtag is, I'm not going to try to explain it to you. Talk to somebody younger than you, near you uh, this morning. But sort of your theme. If that's my theme... I'm just ready for 2015 to get over. What am I really saying? I'm really saying that somewhere hidden within 2016, I'm going to find joy. That if this happens, then I'll be joyful. If circumstances change, then I'll be okay. Then I will experience joy. Well, the Scriptures never tell us they do it that way. But that we find joy in and through Christ Himself. That we don't find joy in the traditions of this season. But it's a great season of traditions, isn't it? That some of you have put up your Christmas trees or you're about to put them up. You've been waiting for kids to come home from college. uh, And they're now home and you're going to put them up. And there's certain decorations uh, that get hung. And there's certain foods uh, that are eaten. And you look forward to this time uh, of going out and enjoying the traditions. That you come to church maybe on Christmas Eve and you, and you light those candles and the darkness is dispelled, it's overtaken by the light and you sing silent night and joy to the world and we take communion and you go home and for some of you the tradition is opening one present just as a sort of teaser for the next morning and for others it's to open them all. For some, it's everybody free for, free for all on the presents and you open them simultaneously at one time. And for others, it's the slow, methodical, one-on-one looking and celebrating and somebody writing down the who gave that to you so we can write a thank you note on that. The traditions of the breakfast casserole in the morning or whatever it is. But there's something that we find that even in the midst of our traditions, we don't find joy. Because you see, joy isn't found in the tradition. It's found through the tradition. The traditions of this life, the tradition even of this season, they don't house our joy. Uh, they point us to our joy. Uh, they, they allow us to look through the traditions into something more substantial, something more significant. That the tradition of lighting a candle can't be your joy. But the representation of light... Of the true light that came into darkness. That's your joy. Because there may be a season in life when you don't have a candle. You don't have a match. You can't come to church. Can you still see the light? Can you still see through that tradition to what was so valuable and meaningful at that time? Opening one present on a Christmas Eve was just sort of this foretaste. And I always found it to be wrong of my parents to do that. Just one, come on, there's all the rest of them. And my dad would say, I just want you to get sort of a foretaste, just a little primer for tomorrow morning. And I thought about that tradition and thought, oh, today and the little gifts that we get, even in communion together, are like that little taste of saying you get to open certain presents here, but ultimately it's on the dawning of the true day that you get to open them all. And so this life is never fully going to satisfy you, but it points you to something. The tradition points beyond itself. And so this morning, we're going to come and we're going to look at Isaiah 35, and we're going to read together the words of the Lord who comes and he says this to us. Hear his word this morning. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice And blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. And the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord. And the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Be strong. Fear not. Behold your God will come with vengeance With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness, and joy, and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. May He add His blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, come now by Your Spirit powerfully, and teach us, and guide, and direct us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If Christmas didn't happen, if God really didn't come, become human, then the joy of Christmas, the partying and all that is only temporary and suffering of this world is permanent. But if Christmas really happened and God really became a human being at Christmas and He really broke into this world to redeem us, then the suffering of this world is temporary and the joy of the new heavens and the new earth is permanent. Tim Keller wrote that. So we're going to look at this joy. This joy that is permanent and fixed, immovable. We're going to look at several things this morning, and there's going to be six if you're an outline taker. I'm hoping to get six on your page today, maybe four, maybe five, but I'm hoping for six. Maybe I should say I shouldn't misuse that word. I'm wishing for six uh, on that. But the first is simply this, that we're going to ask, what is joy? Then there's going to be several thoughts under that. We're going to then ask, why is joy important? How does joy relate to sorrow? Does the joy that we experience in Christ, does it fluctuate? Where do we find this joy? And then finally, how do we cultivate it? I'll go back over those. But first, what is joy? What's a good definition of joy? I read one writer who put it this way. Joy is a deep, durable delight in God that ruins you for anything else. Everything becomes sour. It ruins your taste buds for all other pursuits of pleasure. What it's saying is joy is something that can be found only in God. It sours your delight in everything else. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun and find delight in others, but it just tempers it a little bit. It makes you realize that I wasn't made for this and this wasn't made for me. It doesn't fully and completely satisfy. There has to be something more that satisfies me. C.S. Lewis in his great works would say that if a duck can swim, that means that there's water for it in it to swim in. If you have, are hungry, that means that there's food to satisfy your hunger. And if you were made for joy, that means there is a joy to be experienced and a place where it can be experienced. We were made for this joy. This joy uh, that Paul wrote in Second Corinthians 4 uh, said, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See that word weight, uh, that word glory is the word kavod, which means weightiness or heaviness. It's saying that there is something, there is a substance uh, within uh, the glory of God that, that brings about a joy which creates in us a buoyancy. It creates in us an ability to float uh, upon and within all of the different things that happen uh, within this world. That joy is the ability to stay afloat in the midst of the storm. Joy is the ability not to simply survive in the midst of the desert or the wilderness, but to actually thrive within it. That we find that joy is a durable delight in God. Great definition. So what's the opposite of joy? For many of you, you would say sorrow. Sorrow or sadness would have to be the opposite of joy. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures indicate that sorrow isn't the opposite of joy. Hopelessness is. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul writing in Romans 5. What Paul was saying there and clearly saying is the reason that we can have joy during our suffering is because we have a hope that goes beyond this world. And so we would say then the opposite then of joy isn't sorrow. The opposite then is hopelessness. If you have no hope, then it's impossible for you to experience and have any joy. That the Christian's ability to rejoice in the midst of the desert, in the midst of the pain of life, in the midst of sorrow and loss is because there is a hope that we spoke of in the previous weeks, a hope that is founded in Christ. And so we know now that, okay, the opposite of joy uh, is hopelessness. What are some counterfeits to joy? What are the things that are presented in this world that are counterfeits? Because you see, here's the beauty of the evil one, the principalities and powers of this world. What they want to do is they're not going to necessarily do a frontal assault on you and attack your intelligence and attack you and say, oh, there is no such thing as joy. But what they'll say to you is, oh, here's a substitute. It looks an awful lot like the original one. But you see, the second hand goes smoothly or it ticks. Which is it that's a Rolex? Hmm, I don't own one, so I don't really know. But I know that if you go to New York City and you go and you want to buy Prada, you don't buy it on the sidewalk for 25 bucks. I know that much. I know that that's an imitation. It's a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. Uh, I know that uh, the world presents counterfeits all the time and the evil one does the same thing. And so the counterfeit of joy is the feelings that accompany our resting in the blessings rather than in the blesser. The counterfeit of joy uh, is looking and saying that I find my happiness in the things that I've been given in what I've received rather than the one who has been given, who has given them to me. That we look at Christ and we say to Christ, Christ, I don't so much want you, but I do want what you can give me. Now, there is a profound difference in those two things of how you approach the Lord. And for some of you, you're approaching Him of this, of God, I need this from you and I want this from you. And if I get those things from you, then I'm happy. But what you find and what you know from your studies and our times together over these years has been that's nothing more than idolatry. Because idolatry promises happiness. It says if you obey me, if you do these things, if you sacrifice at my altar, then I'm going to give you that promotion. I'm going to give you some more money. Then I'm going uh, to do this to you and for you, but you've got to come and give everything to me in that way. But what happens when you lose it or don't attain it? What if you don't get the raise this year? What if you don't get the date? What if you don't make the team? If you're crushed under it and despairing, and what you've realized is you were wanting what the idol could give you. and You weren't wanting what God offers. You see, you must push beyond and through the blessings to the blesser. You have to be able to come to a place and say that God in Christ is enough. And folks, that's hard, isn't it? That's when this Christian life, when the rubber meets the road. Is Christ enough for you in your singleness? Is Christ enough for you in your barrenness? Is Christ enough for you when you're bankrupt? Is Christ enough when you've lost your job? when your family seems to be pulling apart at the seams, when all the things that you think that you have to have are stripped away from you, is God enough? And if there's no joy there, currently in your life and whatever you're going through, it most likely is a wonderful marker for you. You know on our cars they have dummy lights. If the oil pressure goes down, well there's an oil pressure light that comes on. Uh, if the tires are underinflated, guess what, there's tire pressure lights now that let you know they're dummy lights. Because they wouldn't want you to have the skill to look out and see whether your tire's flat or to know what oil pressure is like or to know how to do this. they tell you those things. Well, the scripture's filled with dummy lights as well. Because God knows that we need some help in this. And here's one way to do it. If you're not experiencing joy in the midst of whatever you're in, ask the question, are you celebrating the wrong thing? Are you looking to the wrong things to bring you that joy? There's counterfeits out there. You have to identify them, then dismantle them uh, and attack them. So what is joy? We said that joy is a durable hope that's found in God alone. So now the second thing, why is joy important? Why is joy important? Why is joy essential to the Christian life? Why is joy at the very essence of what does it mean to be a Christian? We said last week that love was one of the highest, if not the highest characteristics of God that he has communicated or given to us just by means of creating us. We said there are other uh, characteristics that are not given to us. We can't be all places at all times. Uh, we can't know everything, and we're not all powerful. You need, some of you need to know those, that you don't, you don't have those powers within yourself. Those are only for God. But there are things that are communicated to us, that are given to us, uh, that we, we, as you would, catch in His presence and through His presence. We said last week, love was one. But this week, we're going to say that joy is most assuredly one. Why is joy important? Because joy is of the very fabric of the heart of God. Therefore, it would be of the very fabric of those who would be his children and his followers. Proverbs 8 speaks of wisdom. And it says this of wisdom. I was delighted in mankind and I was filled with delight every day. But then John, speaking in John chapter 1, equates Christ to this wisdom. And so what we see in Proverbs 8 is that Christ, God himself, was equal with this wisdom, or is this wisdom, and basically God is saying this, I was delighted in mankind, and I was filled with delight every day. Interesting word there, delight. You want to know what that word is in the Hebrew? I'm sure you've been waiting with bated breath. It's a word that means to frolic, that God himself frolicked in the presence of mankind. When's the last time you frolicked? What what does frolicking look like? For some of you, it's beneath you. You are too distinguished. You are too refined. You have paid too much money for the education that you have had. You do too much. You are in different circles than that. And frolicking is definitely not something that is going to happen in this house, little man. Little lady, no frolicking tonight. We are not frolicking today. We're not doing that. Quit that. That's silliness. That's unhuman. It lowers us. But isn't it interesting that one of the very characteristics of the God of this universe, when he looks at mankind, he frolics over them. He delights in them. It's a part of his being is to be joyful and to allow that joy to express itself, Zephaniah? Three seventeen. 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And what's the rest of it? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love and He will exalt over you with loud singing. Other translations say that God will dance over you. He will exalt over you. He is in your midst and He celebrates you because He understands how to experience joy. And therefore it would mean seemingly... That the followers of God, that those who are in Christ, who are his children, bought with this price, would have as part of who they are, joy. And the ability to express it. The gospel says good news, right? But in the old King James, do you remember what the language is in the old King James? It brings glad tidings. Isn't it interesting? It brings tidings that bring joy. The gospel is the mechanism. The gospel is that which brings the message of great joy. And it would seem that those who are following God. Why is it so important to have joy in your life? Because it's of the very nature of God himself. And it's at the very heart of the gospel itself. So it should then be a part of who we are. Worship in the presence of this king who frolics over you and celebrates over you. Worship is our response back to Him. And folks, it can't be done like this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. (sighs) Honey, did you hear them play drums up there? Oh my goodness, that was kind of loud, wasn't it? I don't think that the worship in heaven around the joyous King is going to be muted. I have a feeling it's going to be unbelievably loud. And I believe that every instrument ever created in the world is going to be played in front of this king and he will take great delight in it. And his people will do everything in their power to delight in his presence. And so guess what he gives us every single Sunday morning? Practice. The king, we find joy. And folks, we're in his presence right now. Why is joy so important? Because it's part of who God is. And if God has now taken up residency within you and within me, it's a part of who we are. And so we go and we celebrate and we sing. We sing for joy to the Lord. Ah, but you're going, Bill, you read Isaiah 35 and you haven't even mentioned it. Well, I'm getting there right now. And here it is. How does this joy relate to sorrow? How does just joy relate to sorrow? Did you see the context of Isaiah 35? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. You remember, we said that the opposite of joy isn't sadness or sorrow, it's hopelessness. Therefore, sorrow and joy can overlap in this life. And most often times they do. That you find them intermingled in your life. Because you see, in the midst of this passage, joy is found in the wilderness. And we have talked at other times that the wilderness in the scriptures is always descriptive of the land and of this earth is described as a wilderness. Because the wilderness, by its salient qualities, does not have the ability to sustain life. There's not enough water. There's not enough shelter. There's not enough food. That the wilderness wasn't designed to sustain your life. It is a place of loss in the scriptures. But yet, right there in the wilderness, right here, God is prophesying through Isaiah. And he's saying, in this wilderness, in this place of sorrow and loss, in this place that cannot sustain your life, I am going to bring about joy that you will be able to experience alongside sorrow alongside hunger, alongside thirst, alongside all of these things, you are going to be able to experience joy in the middle of it. The world is a wilderness. And you see that we find this joy smack dab in the middle of the desert. And for so many of us, what we want is when we come to church, and some of you today may be coming with this thought in your mind, okay, I'm here, God, I'm willing to give you a chance, but if I come and I give my life to you, then I'm expecting that all the sadness, all the sorrow, all the bad stuff has got to go away. It's got to disappear because you you say that in your word that you're going to give me this new life. He gives you this new life in the midst of this world. For he said that he was a man acquainted with sorrow and acquainted with grief. You see, so many Christians have made this tremendous mistake of coming and saying that they don't see themselves as rebels against God who need to lay down their arms. They look at themselves as sufferers who need a balm and they need medicine. And there's very often this tendency for people to come and say, I will give myself to God and these pains and these sorrows in my life should go away. But if you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, Have you experienced sorrow and sadness and loss? Of course you have. So how is it brought together? You see, there's never anywhere in the Scriptures that promise you that sorrow and loss are going to disappear the side of the king's return. But for the sake of joy that was set before him in Hebrews 12, he ran the race. When he was down here, he had a joy that overwhelmed his suffering He had a joy that helped him keep on going. It overlapped his suffering. It overlapped the intense sorrow that he was experiencing. For you see, Christ was always weeping. And what you find in this world is when you come to Christ, you know what? You experience joy at a greater degree. You can go out and you can look and if you are a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or a friend and you've seen that new child, you experience joy and you know there's something incredibly profound at that moment. That when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you see that how in the world do we become at some level co-creators with God to bring this little one into the world. Or you go out on the beach in the morning and you look out over the eastern shoreline. And you begin to see the glory of the sun rise and it moves you at a place that you've never been moved before because you understand that this is this God who is calling all of nature into order. You experience joy in the middle of life. But you know what you also experience when you come to Christ? A deeper and more profound sorrow. Because you see the brokenness of this world. You see your loved ones who are battered and bruised and they continue to walk into walls and trip over stumbles and they go and they continue to look around and they don't even recognize that they're battered and bruised. They don't even know that they're lost. And yet in you, you are so saddened by it that all of their faculties have been abused by the fall and you look at them and instead of it being some social agenda and some political place, you look and you see the brokenness of the world and your heart is broken You look last night at the Heisman Trophy winner, this young man from incredible poverty. And I was reading on Facebook, and so sad that some of the followers of the other schools that didn't win and the young men that didn't win were shaming this young man for his lack of eloquence in his speech, and that he was raised by a grandmother. And that his father and his mother were not a part of his life, but yet both of them were sitting there in the audience. And he said to both of them how thankful he was. And these people who were out writing these things, friends of mine, for at least today, were saying what horrible things about him. And instead, to look, and the gospel makes you look at this young man, and to just be overwhelmed at the tragedy of life of not having a father who when you walk in at night goes, hey, little man, who's not on the sideline when you're running? Well, you don't have a home like so many of us have had. And your heart breaks because you see through the eyes of a redeemer who said it was never designed to be that way. And instead of putting this young man down for all that he is not, your heart breaks for all that he is. And you enter in and you go, of Deshaun Watson, oh, my heart breaks for a young man whose mom can't speak to him because of her cancer in her mouth and she's lost her tongue. And to not be able to hear your mom say, I'm proud of you. Your heart breaks with sorrow because you see, that's what the gospel does. It's not an antidepressant. When you take an antidepressant, it's designed to clip off the tops and clip off the bottoms so that you can begin to deal with life. And there's a place for that in life. But not within the Christian life. You don't need to take a spiritual antidepressant. You need to experience the great joys of being high. And then you need to have your heart broken. As Christ looked and he wept often. You see, joy and sorrow come together. They overlap in your life. For some of you, you were trying to look for one or the other, and you don't see that they biblically come together beautifully. Joy and sorrow intermingled always. The fourth thing, the question that we would ask is Does joy fluctuate? Does joy fluctuate? John sixteen seventeen would say no. Maybe the experience of it a little bit, but at least at the very bedrock, it doesn't. Christ said, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He's saying this joy is immovable. This joy that you have, this joy that I have implanted in your life because of me, this joy is immovable. Immovable. It does not fluctuate. It does not move the circumstances. Yes, maybe your emotions around it. Yes, but the joy doesn't move. What he's saying is your joy is grounded in me. And if it's grounded in me, the circumstances are not the things which really give you your greatest security, your greatest identity and your greatest joy. You see, if your joy is really founded in me, I don't change. I'm the Lord God and I don't change. He changes, she changes, the stock market changes. These things come and those things go. But if everything you have is resting in that, of course people are going to take away your joy all the time. But if you get joy from me, from seeing me, then what? The answer is nobody can take it away. It's permanent and it's deep. Which leads ultimately to the next question, this permanent and deep joy that we have, where do we find it? Well, we find it in Christ alone. Interesting, and I've got to be very quick here, but I don't want you to miss it. Verses three, verses five and six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing with joy. Interesting, Christ is presented right here in this. This is a messianic psalm. This is pointing to the coming and the advent of Christ, and he's saying, when Christ comes... When Christ comes, and right before that, he speaks of this incredibly bold language of he comes with vengeance and the recompense of God. Well, we haven't experienced that yet. But I can tell you who did experience it on the cross. Satan and all the minions who were standing on his side, they experienced the recompense of God. They experienced the full frontal attack of God against sin and death. And Christ went through the grave, and he won, and he defeated Satan on the cross. And he stands victorious. And this Christ who came is this one who makes the lame to leap and the blind to see and the deaf to hear. John the Baptist was so desperate to hear these words when he was in prison in, John, in Luke chapter 7 and he was facing death. He was going to die. He sent a couple of disciples to Jesus and here's what his plea was. Ask Jesus simply this, are you the one? Are you the one? John was going to die, and he wanted to know that Christ was his hope, that he was his joy. And Christ's response, amazingly, you go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He goes right back to Isaiah 35, and he says, I'm the place of joy. I am the only source of joy in this world. You won't find it every anywhere else. Joy is not easy to develop, but it comes to the degree that you are looking to Christ as your only hope and trust in this world is in Him. That it comes to the degree that you are obeying and believing. It comes to the degree that you believe, verse 10 of Isaiah 35, that you're ransomed, You believe that you were bought with a price. You believe that you were in bondage. That you were lost. That you were in slavery and captivity. But this king entered into the world and he liberated you. That he opened up the gates and you are now marching out with him. And you're marching into an eternal kingdom, an eternal city. A home that you have forever with him. That joy comes from him, not in this world, but it comes from the God of this world. And then finally this, and we'll end. How do you cultivate this joy in your life? This could be the conclusion to every single one of my sermons. You consider it. You consider the gospel. You consider your assurance in Christ. You consider what has happened to you. And in the midst of whatever bad is happening, and some of you are experiencing incredibly difficult times of life, you sit and you consider but it's the immeasurable greatness of the love that you have in Christ Jesus for you. The promise and the hope of heaven itself. I told you recently someone came to me and said, hey, I want to know about all this suffering in the world. I want to know all this, but don't you dare throw in India that popcorn, sweet candy stuff at the end about heaven. That that's somehow supposed to get me through. And my response is, I don't know how to answer you then. Because the Bible says that the way to cultivate joy in this life, is always to remember what you've been promised in Christ. That he says, oh, it will so far surpass the loss and the sorrow here. And we can begin to cultivate it now. I'm going to read for you, and I'll invite the team to come on up as I'm reading. J.C. Ryle, who was the Bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, he wrote these words about how assurance and joy go together. And he says, assurance goes far to set a child of God free from a painful kind of bondage. And it ministers mightily to his comfort. It enables him to feel the great business of life is settled. That the great debt is paid. The great disease is healed. The great work, a finished work. And all other business, diseases, debts, and works are by comparison small. Look at your assurance. See what God has done for you. And then we can sing with great enthusiasm. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Forgive us when we have looked to other things for our joy and been dissatisfied with what you've offered. Would we come now and see the Savior and see him reign and see all that he is. To Christ be the glory. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's sing.